Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it is our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. A few weeks ago, I was thinking about the rest of, the, of this calendar year, 2021, and, and uh, what we would uh, talk through in here. And, you know, without trying to sound too overdramatic, I was like, you know, uh, 2020 was kind of a year that uh, changed everything and makes you, you know, ask certain questions. So I was like, okay, what, what would I want to teach on um, if this was it? Right? I, don't, I don't plan on dying or anything like that. Again, I'm, I'm not being overdramatic. I was just like in that like, okay. And so uh, the last, like the three things, leadership or influence, um, the Bible, like I know that's like all the time, but you, you'll see, and, um, and the Sermon on the Mount, which I preached through or we did verse by verse about five, maybe six, five years ago, five and a half years ago. And uh, well... I'd like to do it again. And it's the longest recorded sermon that we have recorded from Jesus, the longest recorded sermon of Jesus. Um, so that's coming up in, in, uh, in the fall. So uh, that is that. Uh, next week, I'll, I'll say some things about, about masks and kind of whatever for, for here. Um, with June 15th, uh, it's gonna, there's going to be some changes within the state and you know, the church is a little bit exempt from some things, uh, at least from a legal standpoint, but, you know, we also want to be uh, wise, but also um, that it's very, very clear that however you feel about it, that we support you, unless what you feel about it is that everybody else is an idiot and you're going to be an idiot, then I don't support you. But uh, that's uh, kind of different. So I'll, I'll say some things next week, and I don't know exactly um, what those things will be, but it'll probably be something like, um, you know, everybody that, uh, that wants a vaccine uh, has had a chance to get it, at least unless, you know, you're not able to because of some medical condition with the vaccine. But as far as if you wanted it, you got it, and then if you don't want it, then cool, Right. And so it'll be something like, you know, you're an adult and, uh, you know, love people. It'll be something like that, all right? So that'll be uh, next week. And that's it for housekeeping. Let's talk about influencer. Um, that, that phrase, and we all kind of know what it means. We see a lot of influencers, you know what I mean? Like out there in celebrity world. Uh, it does not necessarily mean someone who's built something that serves uh, the world, Right, And it also doesn't necessarily mean someone who has acquired lots of life wisdom to guide others. It often means, it can mean those things, like people that do those things uh, are very influential, but it often means, influencer often means um, shock and awe marketing that generates lots of eyeballs, right? It gets lots of views and lots of clicks. John Maxwell. He is a, if you've read anything on leadership, uh, you've probably come across his name. He is a leadership guru. He said, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. 
But I want to throw this one in here. Uh, British military leader Bernard Montgomery. He was in World War I, World War II, several other wars as a military leader. And he adds something that I think is essential, even though he uh, was saying this before John Maxwell. But he said, leadership is the capacity and will to rally other people, all right, or influence them, to rally men and women to a common purpose and the character which inspires confidence. And I think the implication is your, your character as the leader inspires confidence in the people you've rallied around, confidence in the purpose, the thing you've rallied them to. So those two quotes together are part of, uh, part of how I came up with the mantra, leadership is influence, but character is everything. So let me ask you, uh, were the cult, was the cult leader, Jim Jones, you can Google him sometime if you don't know much about him, but was, was he or was the Nazi leader Adolf Hitler, were, were they good leaders? Now, before you answer in your mind, if you're a thinker, you'll pause, right? And if you're, a, if you're annoying, like me, you might ask, what do you mean by good, right? Like define good, right? Like, now I think we would probably all agree that they weren't morally good leaders, but Jim Jones got a thousand people to move to South Africa in his cult, and ultimately all of them commit suicide by drinking cyanide. Adolf Hitler, he was captivating enough, I think in some ways cultic, but captivating enough to slowly brainwash an entire nation. So these weren't morally good leaders, but they were effective at rallying men and women, and this is a side note, but it's, it's just one, it's gold, so here you go, and it's free, okay? When you look at people like Jim, Jim Jones and Adolf Hitler, and you don't see even a trace of yourself, you're not honest, or you're not awake. And if you want to know what being awake means, you got to go back to Genesis 3, when the eyes are open. But that's, that's just a side note, but it was totally free, these men were effective at rallying people to a common purpose and inspiring confidence in that purpose. And all of us, you and me, we all hold some kind of influence over other people. And all of us are building some kind of character, right? Hopefully it's good and godly. But I, but I would define character as like the accumulated choices or the effects, the accumulated effect of all the choices that we've made that have shaped our current soul. And so, what big purpose or goal do you want to rally other people around and inspire confidence in them through your character, through your life? Well, Jesus came, and you know this, he came to rescue you and I from sin, but also to invite us into a new way of being human, which, by the way, Jesus unpacks what that new way is probably most exhaustively in, you guessed it, the Sermon on the Mount. But in Mark chapter 15 and in Matthew chapter 28, specifically in Matthew, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus tells us, he says, I want you to share the good news about, you know, the cross and the resurrection, forgiveness of sins. Share it to the entire world and help them obey me all that I've commanded. In other words, you know, help people 
obey Jesus' new way of living. So if you're a follower of Christ, this is the top-tier purpose to rally other people around. And after we've rallied other people around that purpose of knowing and obeying Jesus, our character, our life should inspire confidence, right? This would be like something like the spirit of our influence, the spirit of our leadership. So here's a way to assess this. And you can do this right now, but you know, it's, it's, a, it's a project. A way to assess this is ask yourself, does my leadership at home, school, work, and with friends, does it draw people in and closer to God? Specifically to the love of God that is found in Jesus. Does, does, does my life, does my leadership, does my influence draw people in and closer to the love of God that is in Christ? Now, Jesus was always talking about his kingdom. You know this, right? If you've read the Gospels at all, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than any other topic, any other topic. And he says in, or in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, he's talking about the kingdom and brothers, James and John, Zebedee's sons, the fishermen, James and John, they asked Jesus, hey, you know, like when you establish your kingdom, can one of us be on your right and one of us be on your left? They were thinking in terms of empire because how else were they supposed to think when Jesus was talking early on about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, but we know now that Jesus' kingdom was a whole new idea, a whole new way of living together. Now, James and John, they desired what many of us desire, position and you know, views and, and, and clicks and likes and, and keys, you know, they might be physical keys, like, you know, like you get a bunch, you know, keys to certain doors because it means you're more important or something, although there's a great joke somewhere, I'm going to mess it up, but in, in the office when Dwight is talking about how, you know, the more the keys, the more important the man, and Jim says, I think a janitor said that, right, which is so great, which there's an upside down way of looking at that. Have you ever seen Breakfast Club, the classic 80s movie? The janitor, he knows everything. Why? Because he's invisible. People don't pay attention to him. So who really is the most powerful man, if we're looking at the men in that movie? Was it the principal guy or was it the janitor? It's probably the janitor. But anyway, I, I digress. Okay, um, you know, we want these things positioned like John and James did. We want followers or interns or an expense account or a car paid for by the company. Or I want to only answer to the top boss. And then Jesus offers James and John and you and I a picture of leadership that is completely upside down to the world's way. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus says, you know that the rulers in this world lord their authority over their people. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, in the kingdom of God, it will be different. Whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave. Now, quick note, and you probably know this, but servants and slaves in Jesus' day in the Hebrew world, they weren't, they weren't good. It wasn't a good thing. But it wasn't the same as like the 1800s in America. 
But it was a job no one wanted and no one pursued until all else was lost, and that's the only way you could survive. It was low prestige and low honor. And yet this is the vision of greatness that Jesus gives. It's through serving, that leadership would come in his kingdom through bending low. So what I want to show you tonight is the call of Christian leadership and influence and then the temptation then the discipline that's needed, and finally, the fruit that comes when that discipline is practiced. So the call to Christian leadership and influence is, and we've already read it, it's to serve. But you and I are going to be tempted to think, even subconsciously, that it's our position that gives us our like prominence, instead of, a, instead of our soul being in relationship with Jesus and our obedience to his servant way of living. Let me read from Henry Nouwen, who wrote in his book, In the Name of Jesus, which is like less than a 100-page book, and I've read lots of books on leadership. I'm not bragging. That's just fact, and it's my favorite, and it's the smallest, which says a lot, right? Like the really wise, brilliant people are able to say more by saying less. And here's what he writes. He says, I am deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. That is the way Jesus came to reveal God's love. The call in Christian leadership and influence is to serve. I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter 4, the first three verses. This is right after Jesus was baptized, remember? And then it says, after he was baptized, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the accuser. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus' first temptation was something like relevance, like be relevant. So so back then when Rome would conquer a a, a place, a nation, a city, a small empire, right, which they, they were doing all over the known world. Often what they would do is they would offer its citizens, which because these people now had the privilege of becoming Roman citizens, or like you didn't have to, you could be crucified and die, right? But they would offer the new citizens free bread as a way to win favor. So Jesus, if you just do that for yourself, make some stones into bread, and then do it for the masses for this reason, that they'll want to listen to your message even more. It's not a bad temptation. I mean, in the effective sense. The temptation of Christian leadership and influence is to be relevant. Because like in our insecurity, our our failures, our fears, our sin, in our comparison games, we ask questions like, and these are soul questions, man. These are like, you might not ask this out loud. I might not ask this even like cognitively as I'm thinking about, but they're deep-rooted, and I think they'll sound familiar. Questions like, does God really love me? Do I matter in my world, right? Like my circles. Do others need me? 
Or they used to, do they still? Will I be replaced? Will I be forgotten? Jesus replies in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, to the accuser. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, we humans, we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was hungry, but this wasn't a physical battle, clearly. And ultimately, we need God most, not simply food. This is true, but I think it's deeper. Because Jesus fed a mass group of people at least once, maybe twice, depending on how you read some of the variants. But he did it on his terms, not the devil's. And in John chapter 6, he feeds over 5,000 men, which means there were probably 10 plus thousand people there with women and children. And then the next day, it says they found Jesus, the people he had fed, they find Jesus. And Jesus says to them something like, you want to be with me because I, I fed you food. You're preoccupied with right now. What you should do is spend your energies instead seeking after the ultimate life, eternal life, which I can give you. And then he said, I am the bread of life. This is after they ask him some more questions. He says, I'm the bread of life. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll know God and you'll have life. My words give life. Now, We've, we've read to the end of the story and we're like, okay, Jesus wasn't like wanting people to be cannibals to him, like literally, right? He's using hyperbole. He's, it's a metaphor. It means something more than literal, right? But the people didn't know that. And it says that in John chapter 6, they're looking around like, bro, he's crazy. What kind of teaching is this? And they just peace out. They're gone. And Jesus then turns to his main 12 disciples by the way, Jesus doesn't stop them and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, it was a metaphor, right? He just lets them leave. And then he turns to the disciples and he doesn't give them like, hey, it was a metaphor. He turns to them and go, what about you guys? Are you gonna leave too? To which Peter responds, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Translated, Jesus, I never understand what you're saying half the time, but I understand enough I've seen enough, I've, I trust you enough to not need to understand it all. I'll stay. Relevance seeks, clicks, followers, position, salary, degrees, drawing attention to, to, to whatever we're most enthralled by because this gives us relevance status. Like, give people what they want. Say the correct things. This is the game we're in. This is the culture we're in, right? Like, just say, just say what they're saying, even if you're not sure what they're saying, and you're not sure if they know what they're saying. Just say it. Tell the right type of story. Talk about the right kind of identity for your life, and you'll always be praised and needed you always be relevant. However, this is the point here. Jesus is the word. He is God's bread for our souls. So when Jesus says to the tempter, yeah, we humans, you know, we don't just survive by food, but by every word that comes from God. Well, there's so much more because Jesus himself is the word, God's bread for our souls. We're called to live in Jesus' presence, his teaching, his teaching. 
his example. And this, this sparks a fire, right? And that fire won't often make you famous or get you praised, but it will make you alive. And it'll make you like a river that flows in such a way that other people will want to come to you to drink for wisdom, for courage, for hope. This is something like Christian leadership and influence. It's, it's finding nourishment from Jesus in his person. And Jesus ends his leadership thought in Mark chapter 10, by the way. In verse 45, he says, remember, he said, those that have authority in the world, they lord it over people, but not so among you. If you want to be great, you need to be a servant. Then he says, for even I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So the call to lead in Jesus' kingdom is to serve other people in sacrificial love. The temptation, though, is to be relevant, is to walk the, the world's line, is to fit in, to post, say the right things. That's the temptation. The discipline needed is contemplative prayer. The word con, uh, contemplative or to contemplate, it just means to consider, to think deeply, to meditate let me give you a couple of verses, uh, verses from the New Testament before I try to unpack this a little bit. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 10, Jesus says, I have loved you as my Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, my teachings, you remain in my love. In case you were wondering, how do I remain in his love? When you obey, Jesus says, my commandments. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 the apostle, the fisherman, the poet says, we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Contemplative prayer. Here's at least some of what that is and how you do it as a discipline. You meditate on and you pay attention to Christ's love for you and your obedience to him. Contemplative prayer means at least meditating on and paying attention to Christ's love for you and your obedience to him. The greatest investments I've ever made into my two sons is that I married their mother. I mean, I understand that that's also how they exist. I get that, but still the best investment. She lives out contemplative prayer. And, and she's got her own insecurities, but she knows that she is loved deeply by God through Christ. And her modeling of, of prayer is now like second nature to both of my boys in different ways because they are like two unique human beings, just like you are, just like I am. And I can't count how many times both of my boys in their own ways have just been like, oh, you know, we should pray about it. And then they just start praying, Right? And that might be, like if you were at our house and that happened, that might be odd for you. Like I certainly didn't grow up that way, but that's all my boys have known. And, and l listen, they get lots of philosophical and theological, you know, good ideas, you know, I hope they're good, from their dad. But, and don't get me wrong, it's not like I never pray or pray with them, but they have learned this kind of prayer from their mom, both 
in her teaching it, but more so modeling it. When Asher was in his early teens, he's 17 now, but when he was like 13, maybe 12, he wasn't able to sleep one night. He restlessly came to me for help. I, I got out of bed. I went into his room. I prayed over him. I asked him, you know, I did, the, uh, I did some psychoanalysis. I asked him some questions just to try to help him figure out on his own, like, why he might be anxious, why he might be um, restless. And then I said, let's, let's breathe, right? We did some breathing, and then you know what's coming next. We did, and I think it was one of my first ever breathing prayers. I don't remember what came first that night, or I already been practicing these, but we did this prayer where I had to breathe in, um, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, that was the inhale, and on the exhale, have mercy on me, your friend, which I changed. It's a very ancient prayer that um, some of the old saints used to pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe that I am a sinner, but Jesus also called me his friend, and uh, I know a couple things about neurology and how the brain works and how positive thinking works, and so I just chose to meditate on me being his friend, and so I gave that to Asher that night, and he did that. We did that together several times, and there was peace, and he went to sleep, and he just knows how to do that now. Not that it always uh, calms his anxiety, but he's been taught this contemplative way. And, and listen, our questions about and our desire for relevance will linger. Regardless of how good you do of understanding the call, understanding that temptation, and even practicing contemplative prayer, it's natural, it's part of being human, it's part of the, the human nature in that temptation. So, figure out a way to work into your life this assessment. Do I know that I'm loved by God as I am? And then answer that honestly. Because if you don't, then you're just disillusioned and then you're, you're back in Genesis 3 and you're hiding from God. Do I know that I'm loved by God as I am? And am I obedient to Jesus' teaching? And, and maybe I could even back up on that one and say, do you know what Je If you're a follower of Jesus, and I'll go ahead and, I'll go ahead and give you this one for, for free. John chapter 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, right? So do you know what his commandments are? And then maybe you have to back up further. Have you read his commandments? Is that a, is that a normal part of any given week? Do I know that God loves me as I am, and am I obedient to Jesus' teaching? This is part of contemplative prayer. Part of asking those questions is prayer. Like doing that in a way, I did that, um, I can't tell you all the details, but I was working through something on a walk. Might have been today, might have been yesterday, I cannot remember. Um, and I was working through some things in my mind, but I turned it into a prayer. Right? I just talked to God about it. God, here's some things I'm thinking through. Here's some questions I have, and I probably need to ask this person uh, these questions. I'm not sure how it's going to... Just, you know, thinking through. So as you do that specifically as an antidote or as a response to the temptation to be relevant in this call in Christian leadership and, in, and influence to serve people, as you, as you practice the discipline... Here's some fruit that will come from it. And this is how I'll close with these fruits. The first one is confidence in God's love. 
as you practice contemplative prayer, you'll begin to be confident in God's love. Listen to John again in 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence. Here it is. Here's how you do that. Even if we feel guilt or our thoughts condemn us, God is greater than our feelings and he already knows everything. Uh, verse 19, it says, this is how we know. This confidence, this kind of knowing doesn't come overnight. It comes through the daily work of prayer, of reading Jesus's teachings, and then it comes with small, medium, and large steps of obedience. And then that is accumulated over time into what I call character, right? Godly character. Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, I've said before, it's my theological north star. I think it's Jesus' best stuff on God's crazy love for each of us just as we are. But that father in that story that represented God, his love for the prodigal son was not revealed until the son came home. So obedience comes before confidence. But as you obey more and more, you'll be confident of many things, but ultimately of God's love for you. Because it is the great sickness I see in the church, and I don't know that there's ever been another greater sickness in the church, maybe not even hypocrisy. And that is that there are disciples of Christ and there are children of God in the kingdom of God, in the church, who... Maybe with our mouths would say, I am loved by God, but in our hearts we wonder, am I really? And I think that when the confidence of knowing that God loves you as you are, when it becomes, when it's like a seed that flowers and, and, and blossoms and explodes, when it begins to come alive, I think that's, that's when the confidence takes root into our heart. A response to the insecure desire for relevance is cont contemplative prayer, meditating on God's love for you and your obedience to him. And that draws out confidence that God loves you, just as you are. That's a fruit of contemplative prayer. Here's a second one, that, that you end up becoming and having sober judgment or humility. Romans chapter three, uh, excuse me, 12, verse three. Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but think of yourself with sober judgment, which means uh, like not drunk. That's what the word sober means, not drunk. But, but here it's, as, it's a metaphor, basically, like, but, but you use the literal drunkenness as a good indicator of what the metaphor means. Like when people are drunk, they're often, they either think they're invincible, they can run through a wall, or they think they're the worst person in the whole world, right? Like it's, it's, it's kind of one of those extremes. And Paul says, no, 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 be sober in how you think of yourself. And social media, right? Like it presents these highlight reels of other people. And we, it's so much, it's even easier than it's ever been to feel less than. Which is not a sober judgment because what we're seeing is not a sober reality, about anybody's life. It's like our best. It's our, it's our best put out there, which I always, I don't know that I understand like what the opposite of that is. I mean, I understand that that's what social media is kind of for, right? Like this was awesome. I don't, I mean, 
look, if you want to do the whole, here's reality, here's a real, cool. I just don't want to put my worst on social media. I want to go talk about my worst with God and with my wife, right? But, uh, but, if, but if you have, I don't, I don't, this, I'm, this is why I shouldn't get off of, uh, I want to say too many things and then, and then apologize for half of it. Okay, um, but this social media, my point here is, is that it can often make us feel less than because we're seeing everybody's best and we begin to see ourselves as being worse, which is not sober which I love Jordan Peterson's fourth rule in his 12 rules for life. It says, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is or is presenting themselves as today. The last part I added. Possessing a sober self-judgment and living that out is a good, a decent definition of humility. But it's born out of contemplative prayer. And that process takes time. So as you talk with God about how you see his love for you and, and how your obedience to him actually is, here's a few things to do. Ask some humility questions. Like, what are my vulnerable areas of confirmation bias? Here's, here's, a, here's a, uh, a current one that might, that might hit home. If, if you look for white supremacy or whiteness in every problem, you will find it. Which, side note, I often think what most people mean, because there is actual white supremacy, but I, it, I feel like what most people mean is white majority. And humans are bad, all humans, and there's more white people in America than all the other humans, white majority. But I could be wrong, I'm still working some of that out. But if you look for leftist socialist Marxist ideology in every problem, guess what? You'll fall over and die. No, you will find it. If you look for it, you will find it. And if either of those examples got your blood boiling and, you're, and, and what you're feeling right now is, yeah, yeah, but that might be an area of vulnerable confirmation bias for you. And it's and it's a humility question. What are my areas? Where do I get defensive? Where, where am I actually working out some thoughts? Or versus where am I like, you know, looking for it? Here's another question. What, where do I tend to pronounce swift and passionate judgment of another person without honest dialogue first? You know what I'm talking about, right? Like they're saying something or they posted something and you've already condemned them to hell, right? You haven't asked them any questions. You haven't had them like, you know, respond back to you. It's just, and listen, that's confirmation bias at its worst, at its worst because it's an insecurity. And one of the ways you can assess this in yourself, now listen, it'll be really easy to assess this in other people. It's a waste of time. Because again, if you're only seeing Adolf Hitler in Adolf Hitler and you don't see any of you there, you're not honest. Here's a way to assess this part of humility. If you find yourself, like, here's a way to assess if you just pronounce swift and passionate judgment on other people without allowing a response. Do you often find that you interrupt people? Maybe even worse, let's go deeper. Do you often ask someone a question and as they respond, you interrupt? I'm not, I'm not saying that in that moment you're, you're judging them passionately and immediately like making a judgment, but you likely 
have that struggle. And what you need is a sober judgment, some humility. Here's another question. When you seek wise counsel, do you plan to follow it or are you asking simply to, act, to, to say something, to be heard, right? This one's close to home for me because people want my counsel sometimes. And sometimes they say they want my counsel, but 10 minutes in, I'm like, oh, you just needed me to listen to you. And that's okay, right? Living honestly, part of what that means is, can I say some things to you? Would you mind listening? It's actually a really mature way of living. And you'll be surprised at people going, yeah, absolutely. How quickly do I take responsibility of my part of a conflict without instantly pointing out the fault of others involved? It's a great question to help you assess how humble you are or how sober of a self view you have. And then remove certain language. You've heard me say this if you've been around long enough. But when someone informs you of something, like, like especially when you did something maybe wrong and, and they're like informing you, if you find yourself saying, oh yeah, I know, I know. But do you really, if you were wrong, <laughs> you know? Or, like, do you, or are you someone that says, I know, a lot when you don't know, but you feel like you have to say you know? It's a good leak. It, it, good in that it points something out to you. Or when people talk about what should be done, do you, do you say things like, yeah, 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 I always do that. Do you really? I'm a literalist. I struggle with that. You always do that? Or you might say something like, oh my gosh, that's so stupid. I would never do that. Really? Never? There's no scenario that we could come up with that you would do that or even be tempted. Anyway, those are always good fun, right? Or when the suggestions flow, you say something like, no, that will never work. Listen, know-it-all people clearly have the most to learn, but they're not humble. And that's why Proverbs calls some of us fools. So you remove certain language, but you also add certain language. As a response, or adding your own two cents, you've heard me do this if you've had a one-on-one with me about deep, complex things. It is, listen, I could be wrong, right? Or, like, I don't think I have this all worked out, but here's what I'm thinking right now. It may change, right? Stuff like that. Now, I began doing that at about 25, 26, and full disclosure, it was because I knew I was arrogant, Now, you know what I didn't think the first few times I said that? I didn't actually think that I could be wrong. (laughs) When I said, look, I could be wrong, uh, in my mind, I'm like, but I'm not. Because I've worked this out. I've thought this through. It didn't take long, though, because, you know, 25 leads to 26 and then to 27. And, well, before you know it, you realize you're wrong quite often, right? And so now, when I say that, I actually mean it. I really could be wrong. Here's why I think that. And then reconsider your critics, your parents, your boss, your annoying friend or acquaintance. Like, clearly you don't agree with all the criticism they've given to you, but here's the humility work. You ask, where might they be correct, though? Just asking that question, just, just having the courage to ask it can bring enlightenment. It's pretty freeing. Getting to know yourself, having an honest judgment, practicing humility, this makes space for actual humility to 
take root in your soul. The process is difficult and it does take time, which is why the next fruit from contemplative prayer is so essential. It's courage. Courage, doing the right thing even when you're afraid. Or as my brother Derek says, do it scared. When, you're, when you partner with God, when you're doing this contemplative prayer and you're trying to develop an honest view of yourself, it takes extreme courage to then live that out because it's scary, because it's uncertain. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, he tells this church, he says, like, I'm, I know that I'm not an eloquent preacher. And he says, he writes, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. But obviously he came, like it says it, I came, right? So he did it scared. And then in verse four, he says, my message wasn't with persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. That reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter one, verse seven, which was written for all of us. It says God, his spirit, the spirit that God gave us doesn't make us timid, but it gives us power and love and self-discipline. In other words, God's spirit helps us be courageous. So as you're, as you're talking it through with God, here's the call, serve the world. Here's the temptation, but I, but I want to be praised and I want to be relevant. I want to fit in the line so that I don't get kicked out or whatever it is, the temptation to be relevant. The discipline is to talk, through, talk it through with God about how you see God's love for you and what your obedience to Christ actually looks like in the world. And then these fruits begin to be produced. Courage. And as it bears fruit, the last, the last fruit, because there's lots, the last one I want to show to you is compassion. In the New Testament, compassion just means to feel something for someone who is in need and then to do something about it. That's compassion. So as you partner with God to develop confidence in his love and to work out humility in who you are, and the courage to live it out, you, you will then have more and more space to express love and compassion for other people, which is where we started with what Jesus said about leadership and influence. Whoever wants to be great must be a servant, a compassionate servant of all. One more quote from Henry Nouwen from In the Name of Jesus. He says, Christian leaders cannot simply be persons who have well-informed opinions about the burning issues of our time. He wrote this in the 70s. I wonder how he'd write it about 2021. There's a few burning issues, all important. Christian leaders cannot simply be persons who have well-informed opinions. However much of that percentage is some vulnerable confirmation bias. Their leadership must be rooted in the permanent, intimate relationship with the incarnate word, Jesus. And they need to find there, in Jesus, the source for their words, advice, and guidance. I want to close by telling you the story that I read first in 1996. It was from a, a Brennan Manning book, the Ragamuffin Gospel, and it touched something deep in me, and I still uh, remember it and have shared it many times. It's about a rabbi uh, some years ago that passed named Abraham Joshua Heschel. And several years before his death, 
he suffered a near uh, fatal heart attack and his closest friend was by his bed and, and Rabbi Heschel was so weak that he could only whisper to his friend Sam and he said, Sam, I feel only gratitude for my life. For every moment I have lived, I am ready to go. I have seen so many miracles during my lifetime. And he was exhausted from speaking and after a long pause, he said, Never once in my life did I ask God for success or wisdom or power or fame. Maybe we could add, or relevance. I asked him for wonder, and he gave it to me. And like you, I've, I've chased after wonder as well. And I've experienced my, my fair share again and again, the wonder of creation and of humanity and spirit, and blood, and earth, and friendship, and parenting, getting to watch young courage, courageous faith, take shape, and seeing lies overcome by truth. All of that and more has been um, wonderful. But all of it pales in comparison to the love of God found in Christ Jesus. And so for me, since that 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 Tuesday night in 1993, however many decades ago since I've been ruined by Jesus, I have this. Here's what I have. Here's what transcends all other wonder. It is that I am loved by him and that through Christ, God is with me in this moment and in my life. Knowing that God doesn't just love me, he delights in me. He likes me, and this makes space for leadership, for influence, for humble service. This love of God made known through Christ, this makes all the difference. And so uh, Adrian, Jeff, the band are going to come up. We're going to respond in worship like we do. And uh, I want to, I don't have a breathing prayer for you tonight. I, I thought I would uh, encourage you and challenge you um, to do some contemplative prayer, even while you worship, because we are brilliant creatures, right? I mean, we're, we're pretty dumb sometimes, it's true, but uh, I mean, there's nothing better on the planet, right? Like, whatever you want to say about humanity, uh, We're made in God's image, and because of that, we are complex and wonderful and amazing, and we can often hold a couple of thoughts in our mind at once. And so as you worship, maybe it is um, something like, Lord, or, or maybe it is Spirit of God. Help me be honest about how I see God's love for me. Maybe, maybe that's the, the contemplation as you worship. Or, or maybe the Spirit of God help me be honest about my obedience to Christ. Help me, help me see how I actually obey or don't. And of course, all of that leaves room for conviction. But just like if you can't find even pieces of yourself and whoever the worst sinner is now or in history, if you can't, 
Similar to how if you can't find even a piece of yourself there, you're not honest. If you can't see even a piece of the goodness of God in your life and in your journey, seeing where, like when you think of God's love for you and how you see that, there, there may be some conviction there. It may be like, I don't, I don't revel in the grace of God. I sometimes hate myself. And yet God says, I am his child, right? Like there's room for conviction there, but you've got to make sure you leave space also for, even if it's something like, but, but God, I want to believe that you love me. Or I've believed that you loved me at times in the past, and that's been good. And there's conviction for like, yeah, yeah, I believe a lot of things about Jesus' teaching, but maybe I'm not so good at obeying in these areas. There's room for conviction there, for sure. But you've got to allow the Spirit of God to show you too, like, hey, look at, look at what you did. Look at where you're at. Like, you're here. You, you chose to be here. You're here. Jesus said, like, you know, gather. Don't, Hebrews says, like, don't give up meeting often with the people of God, you obeyed. Make sure to see that. Leave space for that. Well, I'll quit saying so many things to you, and I'll say some things to Jesus if you'd stand with me. I'll pray, and then uh, let's go into a time of worship, but also a conversation with God about where you stand with Him. Lord Jesus, thank you so very much for per usual, the vision of life, specifically tonight of leadership and influence that you give to us that is like no other vision on planet earth, like no other vision any other man or woman has ever given, that you have called us into a kingdom and into a influential service like no other. But there is great temptation and we know at least part of what it is and so would you help us would you help us see that temptation and where we stand with it but that you would draw us spirit of God draw us into this conversation with our father who is in heaven and who loves us as we are that we might get a sober view of how we think about his love for us but also that we might see what our obedience to Christ looks like. And in the midst of it all, Lord, as we do this contemplative prayer, thought, exercise, in the midst of it, as we worship, could we join in with all of creation, believing that we too are part of your creation. And if, if the whole thing is gonna shout your praise, well, then we will too, and we'll make that choice. We'll be obedient, and we'll ask you to move in us and through us. And I pray all of this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at wearesya.com.